This is the collection of atoms known as Jason Gotts, and you might be wondering what this show is all about. Think The Muppet Show with less comedy and no Muppets, but still the element of surprise. Each episode starts with a single word. I made this season in the middle of a pandemic, and like a lot of us in confinement, I felt hungry for connection with other people and with wild, open nature. So I asked nine friends for a single word each about the natural world. I thought about the word in an audio diary. I shared each word with a musician and asked them to write a song or two. I used each word to write a short story. And I talked to nine scientists, poets, songwriters, healers, and teachers about the word, about the natural world, and lots more. This is Clever Creature Season 2, dedicated always to my brave sister, Mary. The word of the day comes from James Mayberry, and that word is germinate. The word of today's episode was a gift from my friend Jamie Mayberry, who I met in high school and admired tremendously. He was a senior when I was a sophomore, maybe, and he first took me to see Rocky Horror Picture Show. I believe he taught me who the Smiths were. He played Macbeth in our school production and not only memorized all of those lines, some insane number of lines, but also just played the character brilliantly. Anyway, the word he gave me was germinate. I had asked for words about the natural world, and germinate is what I got from Jamie. So for a long time, I wasn't really sure what to do with that word, because for whatever reason in my imagination, I couldn't get beyond a seed with a root, you know? I was just thinking, okay, seed, root. Once many years ago, I tried to grow marijuana in my apartment in New York. I mean, I did grow it. I couldn't manage to keep the male and the female plants separate. And so what should have developed into nice buds instead became full of seeds. But I remember the germination process. I remember putting the seeds into a wet paper towel and letting them grow their little white root uh, in a safe, dark place, and then planting them. Um, and I remember there being something magical about that. And so I've sat with this word germinate for a long time. Um, and indeed, the story, the short story that emerged from it does have something to do with growing marijuana. But obviously, there's so much more <laughs> to that word. Germination is that slow, secret process of the initial stages of growing. And I think pregnancy is a reasonable metaphor, the seed and the egg meeting in the darkness, in that safe, warm place, and just being protected in there secretly, kind of silently, for a number of months, just dividing and growing unrecognizable at first as a little human or, or whatever it might become. Ideas germinate as well. I've been noticing more and more something that I didn't realize when I was younger, which is that a seed gets planted. Somebody says something to you. You hear about something. You read about something in the paper. And then many, many months later or a year later, two years later, you 
suddenly find that this thing has become a major part of your life. It's been quietly germinating in the background, uh, and then it's become an intention, and then it's become an action, and then it's become a habit, and now it is a meaningful part of your life. Um, and I have increasing respect for that process of germination, you know? I mean, I think it's silly to make big generalizations about quote-unquote our culture, but I do feel like our culture in America um, is really, really product-oriented and really agency-oriented and thinks a lot in terms of like, what are you doing right now to make X, Y, and Z happen? And doesn't have a whole lot of respect for the germination process, that sort of slow unfolding in the darkness until something is ready to come to that stage where you can really bring it into being. And I think we owe it to ourselves in our lives and in our work to have tremendous respect for that germination process, some of which happens in dreams, some of which happens in daydreams, but much of which we don't have conscious access to or control over. But if we give it enough space and enough respect, then beautiful things can, can grow out of it. And if, on the other hand, we force it out into the light too quickly, we risk killing something that would otherwise have existed. This song is by me and was produced by my friend Adi Sadak in Istanbul, Turkey. darkness something is growing nobody knows it no one but me what will it be when day shines upon it nobody knows it not even me dreams unfurling in moss green and purples Whispering, murmuring prayers to themselves Sweet reassurances in private languages
lists of ten things we must do Empty assertions, infallible doctrines Well, I guess it pays well, but it comes back to haunt you This story is called Germinate or Return to the Earth. She's always on me, you know? I told her, listen, I said, you have to take a risk if you want to grow. I mean, not grow, that's not the right word, but what do they say? Scared money don't make none? Not that it's money we're after, exactly, or not only that. I mean, some financial remuneration would be nice, of course, after all these years slinging shit digging ditches with a spork, as it were. But I'm in it for the lifestyle change, a return to the earth, an end to scraping my shins on bike pedals trying to eke out a living from Food Face and Stuff Now and six other delivery gigs that don't pay shit. Well, she was upset that I sold the computer, her computer. But what was she doing with it, anyway? Sending out resumes on Achieve.com, a hundred resumes a week with no response. I told her, nobody hires from those sites. What are they there for then, she said. I'm sure I don't know, but like 99.9% .9 of those jobs get hired out from word of mouth. Nepotism. It's supposed to be a dirty word in a civilized country, but come on. Or 
Not civilized, that's a dirty word too. Can't say first world either. Modern maybe? In a modern country, someone who works at a company recommends their cousin for the gig. Everybody knows and trusts that person. Versus a whole bunch of resumes all looking the same, bunch of bullet points, 12 point times new Roman font. On the top it says, purpose, to make the world a better place. Come on, where'd you get that anyway? A listicle? You're not getting hired. End of story. So yeah, I sold her computer, and my computer, and a bunch of jewelry too, from her grandmother I think. Also, this ugly painting she inherited that looks like a cat threw up on it, but apparently it's worth quite a lot. I took a chance. Guy on the dark web, I think it's a guy, the name he gave was Rasputin, selling an all-in-one kit. Everything you need to start a hundred-acre weed farm. The land, the equipment, everything. But the remarkable piece, the piece de resistance, was this. Rasputin is a genetic engineer. He claims to have developed a strain so potent, so easy to grow, so resistant to aphids, broad mites, fungus gnats, mealybugs, tobacco mosaic virus, leaf miners, white powdery mold, and thrips, that you basically sit on your porch and wait for the crop to ripen. Wouldn't that be nice? Getting to know the vagaries of the seasons, watching the bees build their hives, maybe learning the names of the different kinds of clouds. Allie's thinking too small. Leave it to her and we'd be 80 years old and still getting dragged into housing court. No consideration for effort or good intentions. No consideration for breaking your body down, racing from point A to point B, racking your brains trying to second-guess the map app so the algorithm doesn't flag you for inefficiency. I did it for us. For both of us. I'm a Sagittarius. We're not great with the details, not like Allie, who's a Virgo, but when it comes to vision, we're your dudes. We see the big picture. I see us sitting on that porch, me and Allie. Maybe I've got a banjo. Why not? Maybe she's whittling a crow from a nice piece of cherry wood. That's hardwood, but her fingers are skilled and her knife is sharp, and she's got all the time in the world. Allie isn't speaking to me, so I've got to do it all on my own, I guess. No sweat. The land is really in the middle of nowhere, which is what you want, as this activity is not quite legal yet in my home state of Georgia. Distribution might get tough. It's like 60 miles to the nearest urban hub. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it, though. It's a lot of crates. Every day, more crates of equipment arrive, and the fact is, we live in a pretty cramped apartment. I've had to rent a storage space to buy time to figure out the logistics. What I'm thinking is we can maybe rent an RV and live in that for the first year or two until the operation is up and running. My current plan is to plan it all out and then present it to Allie like a fact. A done deal. She's got to talk to me sometime. Either that or leave, which I really don't want. This is a two-person vision. I love my Allie. Sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed by the project, I just let my imagination go and dream about her in some kind of homemade hemp garment. Like something between a dress and a jumpsuit calling me over to look at some rats that have made a burrow on the periphery of the field. These are farm rats, so our attitude towards them is soft, familial. There's plenty of space out here for everyone. And then, inspired by the domesticity of the rats, we look fondly at one another, and we're thinking the exact same thought. Let's make a baby. Let's share all this abundance with someone. And for nine months, that baby germinates in the safe darkness, and then we're its mommy and daddy. Wouldn't that be something? And then I think about how that kid will grow up. And at some point, maybe when it's 10 or 11, we have to have a conversation about the marijuana farm. And how would you do that exactly? Maybe there's a book. 
I went out Tuesday to visit the land. It's wild, overgrown with tropical spiderwort and kogan grass and kudzu and tree of heaven, just to name a few. I know I sound like a real horticulturist, but it's just an app on my phone that you take a picture of the leaf and it tells you what plant it is. Sometimes it gives you two or three options and then you have to narrow it down, which is a learning process in itself. It's going to be a lot of work to clear those fields, but there's one patch that's pretty manageable, right on the bank of a pond on the property. So I'm thinking maybe I start there. Just plant one seed and learn the ins and outs before launching some massive international operation. Interesting thing about the seeds. Apparently, they last pretty much forever. All their DNA and potential plantness coiled there in the darkness of the seed shell. You could keep them in a drawer for 30 years, a hundred maybe, and they'd be just fine. Before you plant one, you're supposed to wrap it in a wet paper towel for a few days. That's called germination. That soft paper towel, the safe, humid environment, they signal to the seed that it's time to send a root forth. It's time to secure its place in the world. It's like Ali and I's baby, which we will one day have. Everything living starts out somewhere dark and wet and safe. It stretches out a cautious tendril, grows stronger and stronger, then emerges out into the light. I've got one seed germinating right now on top of the fridge, safe from the cat. Ali's still not talking to me, which is ridiculous. I have apologized a thousand times for any grief I may have caused her in considering life, our present day actual life, more important than a bunch of dusty old keepsakes and two computers that weren't advancing anybody's wellness. In a way, I suppose she's germinating too, all coiled up inside of herself, quietly coming to terms with our future. What looks like resentment might actually be a slow metamorphosis, like the caterpillar in its chrysalis, etc. The whole metabolism devoted to that difficult, necessary work. These days I'm full of natural metaphors. So I planted it, about a quarter inch deep with the root tip downward. And would you believe it? The next day there was an inch tall plant with two round little leaves like the ears of a panda bear, but green of course. Say what you will about GMOs, but since humans came into this, I'm not sure we can call anything natural anymore. Or maybe everything's natural. Our consciousness and our intentions shape everything we touch. And isn't that as it should be? Else what is consciousness for? I've been reading a lot of farming books, and you hear a lot of talk about stewardship. Is that what I'm supposed to be? Like a servant to the land? It strikes me as spineless somehow. Too passive. Not worthy of the scope of the human imagination. I met this guy once, crazy guy sitting on a bench in the park, totally in his own world. He was telling me this story about how the devil was an angel that rebelled against God, and how it wasn't from evil, like we think of it, but from an unwillingness to spend all eternity singing Hosanna like the other goody two-shoes angels. He took his destiny into his own hands, which was an admirable thing, but of course that came with consequences. Two days later, the plant was already six feet tall, and it wasn't like any marijuana plant I'd seen in any book. It grew straight up toward the heavens, a thick stalk with branches evenly spaced, like a ladder. Twenty days in, the top of it disappeared into the clouds. You had to see this thing. It begged climbing. So I decided to climb it. Up and up I went. I soon realized I was underdressed for the winds that whipped me at the higher elevations, but I just couldn't stop. At some point, breathing became difficult, and I had to take my time, resting after each rung. Finally, I got to the top, and I looked out across a landscape of clouds. This part won't make sense to you. It still doesn't make sense to me. 
You know how when you're a kid and you fly in an airplane and you look down on the clouds, it looks like they're a soft, sturdy surface that you could walk or roll around on? And of course, that's not what clouds are. They're just vapor. But when I stepped off the top of that marijuana plant, I sank about half a foot into what felt like a puff of spun silk. I lay down on it, burying my face in that exquisite softness. Then I climbed to my feet and started walking. Was this a dream? Was I going crazy? I've heard that some mental illnesses don't start until you're 30, and I'm just about 30. I don't know. It sure felt real. At first, the cloud landscape was just dazzlingly white. White everywhere I looked. Then something began to materialize in the distance. It looked like a Get It Got It. The big box store? As I got closer, it was definitely a Get It Got It. The massive squat building, the iconic red logo of a hand grabbing a dollar sign. There was no parking lot, no cars, just clouds all around. The sliding doors opened and a Muzak version of Sting's How Fragile We Are spilled out. I walked in. There was no attendant anywhere. I walked up and down the aisles strategically, one at a time, but could not find one person in a red vest. I was about to turn around and walk right out of there when something caught my eye. Did you ever watch that TV show Marvelous Erections? It's about people building ambitious houses in England. There's a grumpy but affable host who always tells them they don't have enough money or their timetable is too optimistic and who always turns out to be right. Well, in Marvelous Erections, when they're showing the home design, they use a computer animation to show all the pieces of the building. Windows, walls, doors, and so on, just flying into place. It's really cool. The whole building assembles itself in like 10 seconds. There on display in the Get It Got It was a tiny golden cube, about five inches square. It was a branded product of Marvelous Erections. And according to the video running next to it, featuring the grumpy yet affable host, all one had to do was press the red button on top for this cube to assemble itself into a beautiful, lavish, self-cleaning home. For safety reasons, there was a built-in 45-minute delay, giving you plenty of time to clear the area and leave the cube to do its thing. Allie would be skeptical, I knew, but I pocketed the cube nonetheless and hurried out of there, careful not to let the safety latch slip and release the button in my pocket. They say that cargo shorts are now out of fashion for some reason, but they certainly came in handy in this case. I bounced across the cloudscape, back to my weed stalk, and climbed down as quick as I could. The five-acre clearing at the edge of the pond seemed just perfect for our new dream home. So I situated the cube, pressed the button, and went home. Allie was sitting on the couch, eating circus peanuts, her snack of choice when she's sulking. Honey, I know you're still mad at me, I said, but I've got a surprise for you. Allie must have been coming around already because she allowed me to blindfold her for the drive back to the fields. As I helped her out of the car, it was all I could do not to gasp at the magnificent modern home that had sprung out of nothing. The sturdy steel beams, the massive triple glazed windows, the pre-weathered red cedar cladding. Some landscaping had even somehow assembled itself. A little perfect Japanese garden with a koi pond, a pagoda, some kind of Shinto shrine, and two rough-hewn stone benches. There was even a shed out back for all the crates and the farm equipment. Voila, I said, and removed the blindfold dramatically. Allie is like her mom, not one to gush, but looking at her eyes, I could tell she was impressed. What's this supposed to be? She said laconically. I was quiet for a good long time, holding her hard gaze. Then I grinned and I said, it's supposed to be our home. Everything was hunky-dory for about three weeks. I rented a truck, 
and got some buddies to help me get all the crates out there and secure it in the shed, rented a skid steer and a bull hog and got to work cleaning the land. With any luck, we'd have time to plant and reap a pretty decent harvest this year. I'll admit to having been a bit worried that the rest of the marijuana plants would act just like the first one, which was still basically a giant column stretching up into the sky with stubby branches and nothing that looked like actual smokable weed on it. But Sagittariuses are optimists by nature. I won't bore you with the agricultural details, but suffice it to say, I did my homework. And pretty soon, those magical GMO seeds had grown into a glorious pasture of fluffy bushes. A hundred acres is a lot of land, so we only planted maybe ten acres to start with, which the way things looked would still be a pretty meaningful yield. I spent evenings reading up on various techniques for preserving and packaging weed for shipping, and many's the sleepless night I stayed up on the cheap tablet I now used instead of a computer, researching how to market and distribute my product. Allie, meanwhile, was the happiest I'd ever seen her. Never in her wildest dreams had she imagined we'd be living like this. Like I said, she's not one to gush, but she started a hobby of painting flower pots white and painting ladybugs on them. And more than once, she mentioned that the small bedroom right next to ours would make a perfect nursery. One sleepless night, my nerves pretty frayed by intensive manual labor and jumping back and forth between 20 open browser tabs trying to figure out how to standardize the THC dosage in gummy bears, I heard an ominous rumble outside. At first, I thought it was thunder, but the day had been perfectly clear and there wasn't any rain in the forecast. And anyway, I fancied myself farmer enough at this point that I could sense a storm coming on by the pressure in my inner ears. So I crawled out of bed and headed out into the yard. The sound was coming from the sky all right, but it was localized. As far as I could tell, it was coming from the top of the giant weed stalk. Rum, 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 it said. Rum, rum, rum. It wasn't the sound of weather or of any machine, more like the vocalizations of a mastodon or a woolly mammoth, as I'd imagine them to be. Rum, rum, rum. It seemed to be coming closer. Preemptively, I ran to the shed and grabbed a chainsaw I'd rented to clear a tree a couple of days back. By the time I got back to the base of the stalk, the sounds were much nearer. It was too dark to see anything, but it was clear that something big was coming. And that something was speaking English. My house cube, it said. My house cube. As low as the voice was, Almost below the range of human hearing, I could tell that it had a British accent. The moon was full and bright that night, and looking up, I could see an enormous, looming figure about 150 feet above me. It stopped short. It bent down, sniffing, its huge face parallel to the earth. As our eyes met, I recognized the bushy, beetling eyebrows. I recognized the cheeky mutton chops. Without a doubt, in giant form, here was the grumpy yet affable host of massive erections. My house cube, screamed the oversized presenter. My house cube. I fired up the chainsaw. With clarity and determination and a sense of time itself dilating, I sawed through the stalk. The giant scrambled down as quick as he could, but it was too little, too late. Timber, I yelled, and stalk and giant toppled together never to rise again. It was gory business, like in the movie Fargo, 
disposing of the giant's corpse and using it for fertilizer. It was slow, messy work that took 10 days straight and a lot of mollifying of Ali, who as a kid couldn't even handle Saturday morning cartoons. But I set my mind to the task, reasoning that like Lucifer the angel, once you've made up your mind to carve your own path, you better be prepared to roll up your sleeves. It's a life I'm building here, for me, for Ali, and for our soon-to-be baby. And I'm not aware of any life that doesn't rely on the death of something else as fertilizer. Gorged on the blood and the bones of the giant, the fields of weed burst into bloom, their heady, unmistakable stench filling the whole world, their conical flowers arcing up into the sun. Before I introduce the guest, just a quick note to say that all of these conversations were recorded in the fall and winter of 2020, either just before or just after the U.S. presidential election and several months into the pandemic, in case any of those themes come up. Around 6.30 one morning last week, I looked out of the glass doors of my balcony at the sun just rising above an ugly, boxy apartment building in Astoria, New York. The sun and the sky above it was a color for which I have no name. What comes to mind first is Electric Peach, which sounds like a Lost Prince album and doesn't capture it at all. I stared at it, though they say you shouldn't stare at the sun, through bleary, pre-caffeinated eyes and thought, man, that's beautiful. And then immediately noticed the thought that always follows my noticing that something in nature is beautiful. Something like, geez, I wish I could really take in that beauty, really capture it. Instead, my brain throws up a smokescreen of words like electric peach. And then I thought a new thought. Stop with the words. Stop with the beautiful, even. Just stop and look at it. So I did that. For a little while, I just stood there and quietly, wordlessly sank into all that beauty. My guest today is the poet and essayist Ross Gay. After reading his book-length poem, Beholding, and his book of essays, The Book of Delights, I think I can confidently assert that this is a man who looks and listens with his whole body for a good long time before putting words to anything, so that when the words do come, they come trailing awe and respect for the fact that to look at almost anything is, as he puts it, to witness the unwitnessable. In the Book of Delights, Ross bears witness almost every day for a year to things that delight him, including blowing off a day of writing about his delights. In the poem Beholding, he bears witness to an impossible, gravity and logic-defying shot by the basketball legend Dr. J in the 1980 NBA Finals, which is itself a metaphor for flight, the upward flight of the spirit in the act of holding anything with love. That's one thing Maybe the main thing Ross's writing does, at least in these two books, it holds things with love. Often they're little things, easily forgotten, like the airport security guy who thought Ross was being flown to Syracuse to read not poems, but palms. Or how his dad always maintained that bumblebees are physically impossible, too much mass, too little wing. Often the things held are moments of physical touch or synchrony, like the crowd at that NBA final reaching up in unison as if to catch Dr. J as he descended, or a kind shoulder tap from a random flight attendant. And sometimes Ross bears witness to horrors, too, with a loving gaze that releases them from the unloving camera lens of history and maybe frees them just enough to move on. Welcome to Clever Creature, Ross. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. 
I think I wanted to start by talking about, with reference to the poem, Be Holding, talk generally about what holding means to you. And I was thinking holding as a practice, holding as a discipline, holding as a physical gesture, why that concept occasioned this whole poem. Yeah, I love that. I mean, one of the interesting things I think is that for years that poem was called Flight. And I have, for obvious reasons, mm-hmm. because the primary focus of meditation or whatever you say it, is this move of Dr. J's that you referenced um, from the 1980 NBA Finals. The best layup in the history of basketball, <laughs> I like to say. Your obsessive watching of that led to obsessive watching of that on my part. I, I must have watched that thing a <laughs> hundred times, which is especially remarkable given that I was the squirrely literary nerd kid who decided that sports was lame because I couldn't do them and so never really got into it. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, so the poem, for those reasons, is called Flight. And it had been. So I have all these documents, Flight 1, Flight 2, Flight, all these documents, versions of that poem. And then I read this book called In the Wake by Christina Sharp. That's also a book very much about looking, among other things. It's about looking. Yeah, it's about looking and witness. And the word beholding and the word beholden Mm. became, boom, came to me from that book. So that then I realized, oh, when I'm talking about flight, I'm also talking about the holding that makes flight possible and the beholding that makes flight possible. I thought I was an attentive reader and I didn't even put those two words together, be holding into beholding until just yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, yeah. So the one of the questions, of course, is like, and, and it's kind of in conversation with Sharp's book and, and other stuff too that I was kind of deep in, is how do the ways that we witness make our lives possible? So that's how the holding came in. It came in from thinking about that. But then it's like a central feature of the book. And so much of what the poem is about is about reaching. And Dr. J, like what's so amazing about that basketball move is that it's a kind of reaching. So much reaching throughout the piece is reaching toward the flight and reaching toward Dr. J. It seems like there are two kinds of holding in the book that you're talking about. Broadly speaking, we could call it good holding and bad holding, right? Yeah, yeah. Good holding, which uplifts, which is keeping things in a state of motion. And I think of it in terms of the fact that everyone is passing into death, obviously. We're temporary. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's the holding of the fragility of the living thing that in a way gives it more life, the beholding, witnessing. Yeah. And on the other hand, there is a kind of holding that you talk about, a cold beholding, which freezes things in place like a like a butterfly on a pin. Yeah. I've been thinking so much because I, you know, I teach, I teach writing. I teach in like a graduate program here at Indiana. And I think a lot about teaching. I'm all the time thinking about teaching and I have these like beautiful folks that I my students, you know, people I study with, etc. And I don't know if this is familiar to you, but there's a form or a genre of class called the poetry workshop or the creative writing sure, workshop. Yeah. The basic thing is that someone brings in a piece of work and then everyone kind of talks about it and it's like a kind of a critique mode in the very best kind of dreamy way possible. People will maybe just ask questions of the piece, but it's almost impossible because the genre kind of refuses it in part because it's called workshop. And so what people want to do is fix your shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
poetry repair, essentially. Which is the worst possible <laughs> way, in my opinion, to imagine, you know, making anything or being around each other, being with each other. Let me fix you up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so I've been thinking so much about unfixing that the most interesting art and living and observation to me is a kind of unfixing even myself, like this therapy stuff that me and my partner are going through, being like, oh, one of the ways that we can be sort of more, you know, kinder to each other and ourselves is to be curious and to unfix our notion of each other and oh, to ask questions, actually, of one another. <laughs> so anyway, then to think of like, when you were talking, it made me think, partly, I think the kind of holding that I'm interested in, like you said, there's a kind of holding that wants to pin down and all the words that we use for photography, mm. you know, capture, you know, fix, all these things. I've been wondering, I think, and the way you were talking made me think it, if there's a holding that's also an unholding. So that doesn't that doesn't stop holding, but it but is an unfixing holding, you know, a holding that is also sort of sort of maybe what we mean when we talk about unconditional love and if you love somebody, yeah. let them go. Like the difference between yeah. actually in Buddhism, you yeah. know, I, I saw Sharon Salzberg commented on your book, so I'm guessing you've interacted yeah. with some of the ideas of, of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. I think about that as the difference between grasping, which in Buddhism is what sort of locks us into an unhelpful reality and mindfulness or sati, which is essentially holding reality loosely, but seeing it clearly in every, every moment. Yeah. And that, that requires a kind of curiosity, a kind of patience. It probably is maybe cousin to like groundlessness. I was telling my friends the other day that I remember I had this conversation with my, my buddy, one of my best friends in the world, Jay. We've been friends since we were like 13. And at some point I decided I didn't want to, um, I was doing jujitsu a little bit. Mm. And I decided I didn't want to do things that cultivated my defensiveness. Mm. <laughs> and I said it over the phone and I don't know what sound Jay made, but in my imagination, I imagined him making a sound that, that was one of unrecognition. Like, <laughs> oh, who is this person? And my response to that feeling or my body's response or something was that I felt physically like I was dissipating. Like I became particles mm. and started floating apart a little <laughs> bit. And, you know, like kind of came back together. <laughs> but I was like, that was a really unfixing, it was an unfixedness, you know, when I was sort of imagining someone who so clearly helped me to understand how to see myself. I was like, oh, he's not seeing me. Who, who am I? Right. That's kind of the reverse of the the fixing. That's kind of having to accept where you're at, regardless of what you're getting from the outside and regardless of your former yeah. expectations of being held or fixed in certain ways. And so in a way, like the kind of unfixing this when I think of like a classroom or, or a friendship or a relationship, yeah. you know, is there a kind of holding that also appreciates change? You're just like right. you know, movement. You know, going back to the poetry workshop idea, you know, I'm thinking about the kind of like the rigor that is implicit in that model, which is to say, we are going to take poetry really, really seriously. We're not just a bunch of flaky artists here. We're going to sit here and take the criticism from the outside. And you hear that a lot in writing as well. You hear people talk about you know, having a thick skin and submitting to criticism and, you know, but even like almost in a 
sometimes almost in a masochistic way, like, come on and tell me what's wrong with it, you know, sort of thing. I wonder what some of your thoughts are about that, about the craft of art and what might be like an American work ethic and the ways that interacts. I mean, maybe sometimes that rigor is good. I don't know. But I'd be interested to hear, you know, in terms of discipline and on the other hand, freedom, how you think about that. This will come back in a way, maybe to the beholding book too, but the idea, I'm interested in practice, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it comes up a lot in, in, and, in your work, yeah. Yeah, and I understand the impulse, that idea of rigor and a very specific sort of formulaic notion of what rigor is, partly right. because I, I was that person. I was like, come on, let's go. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, tell me what's horrible here, you know? And I realized at some point the only the only two things, real two things that I was interested in when I would go into one of these workshops would be it would be a good class if the teacher liked it or if I knew how to fix it. Okay. It wouldn't be a good class to me if I felt like, oh, my questions are much deeper or if I was more lost, even more lost by the thing that, that I had made. Whereas now it feels nice if we can sort of hold each other's questions together. But the idea of that kind of rigor, I think, I think it's fun to write a bunch of similes or something, you know, to work on that. I think that's really good. I think, you know, when I wrote this book of delights, which is I wrote essays every day for a year, I got better at writing essays, I think. I, mm -hmm. I learned how to do them. You had done only or mainly poetry outside of, I guess, academic writing in school. Yeah, yeah. I had mostly written poems. And so by the time I had written 300 of those things, I know how to do it a little bit. But of course, knowing how to do it a little bit is like a fixing. And so right. then once you kind of know how to do it, you want to be like, all right, well, do you know how to do it? Or Maybe I know how to do it. I'm getting a little enamored of my own style and the flourishes of my pen. Exactly. Or oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that sounds just like me. That sounds just like me. All right. You know, <laughs> so I wonder about in terms of rigor, I, I've said that word so many times. Like I, I realize, like whenever I write a letter of recommendation, I always say rigorous and, and I always... And partly it's what you said, like people being like, what do you, what do you all do actually? Like you go to school for that? <laughs> but now I'm like, I think of many things as part of my practice that previously I would not have. So for instance, sitting and looking at the sycamore tree at the cemetery. Right. Or, just, or not looking at the cemetery, you're just sitting. Constitutes part of my practice. You know, rest constitutes part of my practice. Reading constitutes part of my practice. Having a good conversation constitutes part of my practice. And it's not only the sort of things that we imagine as being the work that is the work. I do think it's a function of capitalism and consumerism in ways that I'm not going to try to pin down right now. But for artists, it is hard. Like you have to unlearn those very narrow notions of what constitutes work or practice, as you say, and learn how to allow other things in. I mean, I'm still not to the point where I can take a nap, for example. But shit, like that too, loafing and being at your ease, to quote Whitman, who I feel is sometimes a spiritual inspiration for you as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even like in terms of just for the good that it does, because it's nice because you want to do it, you know, and then if you wanted to be like, and hey, yeah, what about poems? Well, I don't know, like you have dreams when you take naps, you know? <laughs> Even in this, I'm utilitarianizing. I can't help utilitarianizing those things and say, <laughs> yeah, they feed into the practice. But it's also right. just your life. It's good to have a good yeah. conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then it's, yeah, like this idea of practice gets more 
interested and complicated. So that the poem is not necessarily the only part of the practice. Because I grew up playing sports and stuff, and <laughs> and I have this, this story that I've been remembering. I'm, I'm writing a little bit about basketball again. And there's this part of my thing, like, and it's a habit that comes out of some of the stuff you're talking about. And it's a habit that also comes out of like my training as an athlete which is that you do reps. You do reps to correct a thing. Okay. And you learn how to do a thing just by reps. And foul shots, it's good to shoot a lot of foul shots. The sentences, I think, you know, it's good to write a lot of sentences, sure. Poems, good to read a lot of poems, write a lot of poems. But I'm more like, <laughs> there's something else behind this thing. And this dude, I remember I was playing in a, in a league with this guy, and he was a little bit older than me. He was a beautiful basketball player. He was an older guy. So I was probably 25. He was probably like 32. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, old man. Yeah, he's an old man. And he said to me, um, he was a beautiful offensive player. And I was not. I was just like sort of an athletic, kind of strong kid. So I could like, I could make baskets, but it'd all be like what you call trash or junk. Like I would just get mm-hmm. rebounds and put stuff in. But he was beautiful. And he would make beautiful shot and beautiful touch, what they call touch. And... One day we were running back on defense and he said, hey, man, you need to rest on defense. Rest a little bit on defense. Mm. In a kind of orthodox basketball mentality, you don't. You rest on offense and you play so hard on defense. Right, 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 right. (laughs) And all these years later, I was talking, I was like, man, there's something about that. He was actually giving me a deeper wisdom than I was able to understand at the time. And I was talking to my buddy Pat and he was like, yeah, you can think of like the rest in music where the song's going on, but it's quiet. Mm. And maybe there's a different kind of listening happening. Seems to be about listening so that you can intelligently respond as opposed to just being so go hard all the time that you're out of the rhythm of the game. That's right. That's a beautiful use of the word rhythm because you're trying to impose a rhythm on the game rather than joining the rhythm of the game. But a space where we're trying to sort of imagine making really beautiful work I think probably they're required, like rest and rest in this kind of way of like sort of settling right. and listening, looking and being still with stuff is more important than imposing. So you're thinking and you're kind of evolving toward structuring what was traditionally the poetry workshop in a different way, a way that is maybe more like gardening, that's maybe giving a little more fertilizer, a little more space, a little little less. No correction. Just like offering in our classes, we offer exercises and we don't really write poems anymore <laughs> too much. We're like making movies and, and making like videos and stuff. And <laughs> the other day we were talking after class and we were like, oh yeah, maybe our last exercise, we should be a collaborative. It's all collaborative in our class. And and we were like watching some videos like Janet Jackson and stuff. And we were like, oh, we should make a video. That's what the last thing we should do. Like make a, nice. <laughs> make a music video. Probably because we don't know how to do it, you know. And it's kind of like, well, that's also a thing that a kind of workshop we're fixing is the thing impedes our willingness to sort of do things that we just don't know how to do. Right. Which is so often where we make beautiful shit. Right. Then you make a leap in some other direction, which anyway will probably feed back into your your work if the point is about the growth of the poetry. And so that brings me to, I was thinking about, you know, the way that you wrote essays in the Book of Delights. And I think it's true in the poem as well. There's a There's a kind of an ethic of lightness, not that you don't go to heavy places, but essentially you're leaving a lot of space 
you draw in light brush strokes, you use humor. And I'm thinking by contrast, <laughs> my friend had an anthropology professor who once said, why must difference always smuggle in hierarchy? And so I want to be Ugh. careful here because I'm not trying to smuggle in hierarchy. But I, I've been reading Z Zadie Smith's essays recently, uh, some, some of her older ones again, and then the ones she wrote, the small books she wrote during this time. Yeah, it's beautiful. In, in, intimations. And they're absolutely beautiful. But she's doing a very different thing from what you're trying to do. Like she has this kind of intellectual project of trying to really like pin down exactly what she means. I feel like there's a little, and I think she'd agree, there's a little taskmaster in her head that's like, get it into crystalline and kind of impenetrable, correct truth. Try to get it onto the page. You're doing something different. I mean, there is a lot of profound poetry and philosophy and, and depth in it, but there's a lightness. Yeah, and I think part of the... Um so the way that the book came to be is that one day I was walking up a hill in Italy and it was a pretty day, beautiful day. And I was in a moment of delight and I thought, oh, I should write an essay about this. And then immediately like, no, you should write an essay every day for a year about something that delights you. It just like came. Oh. And I gave myself these rules because one, I'm like, I have these kind of ideas sometimes. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> then I'm like, man, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> but I wanted to give myself, I was like, okay, do it. You can do it daily and write it quickly. So I gave myself a little right. thing of like, it was like I made it a rule, write it 30 minutes, you know, just draft it in 30 minutes. What if I may ask was the rule about editing, how much time you could spend fixing I can spend as much time as I want. <laughs> as much time as I want. But I realized too, like right away when I was when I was transcribing them into the computer, say two or three weeks later, I started to feel like I wanted to edit them right away. And I realized I was ruining them. Mm. I was I was ruining them. And there was some kind of spirit of like the quickly considered thing mm. that I was losing. And when I was trying to impose like probably what my normal writing brain is, which is like the, not the quickly considered thing, but sort of the slow and methodically, how I, I, how I think I probably more regularly write, the slow and methodically considered thing, trying to impose that on the quickly considered thing, though it, it was losing what was interesting about it. I mean, I just want to footnote that uh, you have one essay about how writing by hand, which you did for these changes the way that you write and allows for a di digressiveness that you don't get when you're typing. Like in a way, when you're typing, you're editing at the same time because you can highlight and cut and- Totally, yeah. There's a kind of, you kind of, it's actually so funny that we're coming back to this now. Maybe there was some way that writing them quickly by hand is a kind of unfixingness, you know? Mm, mm. Like the time, it was like, you got 30 minutes Change the question. Get deeper into the question. You know, why does the public high five make you happy? <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Go, you know? <laughs> and it's sort of like, it's going to make you think in a way that, you know, me and my writing, like I said, I don't really think that way. So it's a different kind of thinking in my writing. And also to do it by hand is a physical, there's a kind of archive of the thinking that typing, like you said, like being on a computer, it allows you to sort of like just delete this whole record of thought which is kind of interesting. The record of thought is interesting. It might not want to stay in the final thing that you share. Right. But it's a it's an interesting remnant and it might even be an interesting remnant in terms of how you do end up revising 
the piece. But, you know, like I love looking at people's handwritten documents, you know, because partly because they're unfixed. Even when they're fixing them and scratching stuff out, it's unfixed. I mean, first of all, I can really relate to the discursiveness because that that's kind of the natural mode of my mind. And in fact, I really have to rein myself in sometimes in these conversations to ensure that I'm at least like touching on some of the things that I had meant to, because we might be <laughs> end up going off into, I don't know, our shared 80s memories or, or whatever, and, yeah, and yeah. never get to the work. <laughs> but, but I think a lot of the humor and a lot of the moments in, in Book of Delights when I was just like hitting the table, like, <laughs> fuck yeah, fuck yeah, was because of, because of those sort of sentences within sentences, thoughts within thoughts, and just seeing mm. your thought process that way. There's a generosity to that and an honesty to that that is missing from almost everything in the world today. Yeah, I love that you say that. Because I, I sometimes I'm like, man, this is tedious. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll be at a reading and like, I think my my sense of humor is really tuned to um, certain people. My brother, more than anyone in the world. Like, I'll be at a reading and like, if my brother's there and, I mean, I'll be giving a reading. If my brother's there and no one else laughs at something, I'm going to hear my brother laughing at something, <laughs> you know? Right. But the thing when you were saying, I was just... Um, I was just reading um, an Eileen Miles book and I was like, oh, that's a kind of someone who also, whose work I really love, who also has that kind of like in the mind, discursive, following the mind, honoring that sort of process that, well, like I said, it can feel like, ooh, this is challenging to follow actually a mind, you know? Yeah. But to me, it's so fucking interesting. I love it. I love it. I feel like it's marketing and arts industry that puts things into little boxes, puts things into genres, yeah. forces forces everything into a certain diamond like that hides the strings, hides the humanity. And then, you know, I was going to say at the same time though, it's like if the public gets to a point where they're so sick of that, then authenticity itself becomes another consumer product. You know, we have this, the hunger yeah, 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 for, yeah. Yeah. for seeing the strings, whatever. All of that right. is, all of that is a hell realm that I don't want to spend any more time in. But I feel like um, <laughs> your work is a breath of fresh air. It's obviously not, you know, a response to any of that dialectic that I'm talking about. It's just, it's just real and, and honest and, and pure. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, I wondered if you would be willing to read one essay from Book of Delights, which is for the listener, it's essay number four called Blowing It Off. Yeah, Blowing It Off. When I began this gathering of essays, which yes, comes from the French essay, meaning to try or to attempt, I planned on writing one of these things, these attempts every day for a year. When I decided this, I was walking back to my lodging in a castle, delight, from two very strong espressos at a cafe in Umberdede, delight, having just accidentally pilfered a handful of loquats from what I thought was a public tree, but upon just a touch more scrutiny was obviously not, delight, and sucking on the ripe little fruit, turning the smooth gems of their seeds around in my mouth as wild fennel fronds whisked in the breeze on the roadside, a field of sunflowers stretched to the horizon, Casting their seedy grins to the sun above, the honeybees and the linden trees thick enough for me not only to hear, but to feel in my body the sun like a guiding hand on my back saying, everything is possible. Everything. 
My mother, who has not always been keen on praise, has these days, for some reason, been praising my discipline. Maybe it's because I have a kettlebell practice or I never eat bacon. But since she said it, and she's my mom, I tend to think it must be true. The first essay or try or attempt that I skipped was on day four. Believe me, I had good reason for blowing it up. I can't remember it now, but it was convincing. Probably I got tired and thought, oh, I'll just write two tomorrow. Except when tomorrow actually came around, I was daunted at the prospect of trying two in the same day. One try is hard enough. What if both attempts were awful? I'm dramatizing what was probably the minutest chatter in the Siberia of my mind. So deep, I doubt I even heard it. Or instead, perhaps I quickly revised my position to regard the occasional lack of discipline. Let me call it failure. No, let me call it blowing it off into a delight. Rather than putting Ross on the rack and whipping him with a cat of nine tails, what is that? And pouring alcohol all over the wounds, antiseptic? And then flicking matches at him and telling him to dance, you lazy, worthless goat turd. Are you asking how you can be on the rack and dance at once? Me too. I decide, despite all the disciplinarians breaststroking the slick and gooey folds of my noggin, double-fisting sickles, swinging at anything that looks too glad to just blow it off. An apropos ancillary delight, the word whatevs. I was probably absent five times in 13 years of primary school, despite having had two surgeries and pretty serious asthma, breaking a few bones, and not infrequently falling hard on my face. I had a paper route for most of those 13 years and literally not like the kids say literally, I mean literally, never skipped a day, even after the night when I was about an hour away with a new lover, curled into a ball fingering each other after gallivanting barefoot in a thunderstorm. And I would have rather died than miss basketball practice, the first part of which I did in fact miss two days before the playoff game against Upper Marion, where I had to be prepared because they also had a big old bruiser in the post. And we won by seven, but still, I woke in a panic and got there fast as I could on the verge of tears, apologizing profusely to Coach Simon. And about a week before my old man was diagnosed with liver cancer, I was hanging around the house when he was getting ready to head out to his job at Applebee's. I said, "Oh man, blow it off. Let's go watch Hellboy. He looked at me wistfully while tucking in his shirt and sliding his belt through the loops. You have no idea how bad I wish I could. That was the first time he'd said anything like that. I was 29. And so, in honor and love, I delight in blowing it off. What I love most about that is that I think a lot of people spend their lives, maybe it's an unfortunate term, but maybe it's appropriate, slavishly devoted to a work ethic that they've inherited from previous generations, both because that ethic was necessary to survival. And then long after it was absolutely necessary in that form to survival, it was just a kind of like automatic algorithm by which you dealt, you organized your life, um, which is a kind of an intergenerational trauma in a way. And for you to honor your father, I think many people honor previous ancestors by like working themselves to the bone or by in some ways repeating that that generational trauma 
And it seems to me, I don't know, a profound, a difficult act, an act of courage and creativity to, to revise that, that narrative in honor of your dad. Yeah, I love how you put that. Yeah, I was hearing that um, last line, in honor um, and love. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's such a, I mean, I'm always writing about my dad, but so much of my art, you know, we, we had so much struggle, but a part of our struggle, <laughs> he was just nervous about money, man. And he just like, if you weren't working, like, what were you doing? You know? So in a real, very serious way, I mean, he taught me a lot about work. Mm. And when I say that, I mean, he taught me things that I want to do. And also the, th- <laughs> also the thing I was sort of hearing it newly in that essay where I'm 29, he was, so that would have been like, you know, he's probably, I can't remember if I said it in the essay, he would have been gone and dead in six months. And that his whole life, he actually was never like, I fucking hate my jobs. I hate them, you know? Right. He was never said that, you know, as a kind of, you know, as a kind of caretaking probably. Because if he said it, it leads to a whole cascade of of things that, you know, yeah. are dangerous. Yeah. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, kind of like, yeah, like a few months before he, he took off, he was like, no, nah, man, I wish I could hang out with you. Like mm. So dear. I really relate to this from a very different angle. So my, my father is a businessman. He's a physician and a businessman made a lot of lot of money. I mean, we were not billionaires or whatever, but we were very comfortable growing up. I was very comfortable. And um, completely separate from that around, I think, I think it had nothing to do with him, the initial scar- spark, but around 16 years old, I became in love with art, with poetry first, I think, and then Shakespeare, Shakespearean acting, Peter O'Toole, those people. And, you know, resolved as my identity was forming itself, like, to dedicate my life to art, which set up a binary between me and my father. And we're very good friends now. We get along very well now. But it set up a binary between me and my father from his fear of my never being able to make a living, which in some cases turned out to be justified. It's deep. It's deep. And it's also like when I think of that part of my father's anxiety, and I think it relates to what you're saying, is that I wouldn't be able to, quote, take care of myself. Right. And in a certain kind of way, when it comes down to it, what I regard as a kind of brutal, you know, working at Burger King or like working at fucking Applebee's. His last job was at Applebee's. Roy Rogers, Red Lobster, etc. That itself comes out of, I mean, out of a, a system that imagines that where the fan, there's a fantasy of taking care of oneself. When right. in fact, we, we want to be in a world where we take care of each other, <laughs> you know? For men, the masculine expectation of providing for the family as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's all yeah. on, on the man. So I just think of like, oh yeah, like part of the practice, the inheritance of my father is to, and my mother who's worked, you know, I think she probably worked 60 hours a week doing stuff that she didn't particularly want to be doing. And like, you know, it was just like being able to pay bills, but embedded in it was a kind of like taking care of yourselfness and taking care of the kids, taking care of the family and all that stuff. Yes, yes, of course. And 
we got to study how to take care of each other. And what's ended up happening, which is interesting and like not, I don't want to spend any more than this on, on myself, but what's ended up happening in the relationship between me and my father is that he has had to come in and bail me out at times in my life when I really, I needed help financially as an adult, you know, and I had to get over shame and pride and all kinds of things around that. And he had to get over a certain amount of fear and terror around that. But it's brought us together, like as those aspects of my my career, you know, as they've blossomed, that's in part because we were able to come to that sort of mutuality relationship. And now I feel profound gratitude toward him and can understand that differently. Now, having having said that, like in the eyes of society, it's still a bigger pill to swallow. And yeah. like even saying it on a podcast yeah. like this, I'm kind of yeah. like flapping my underwear in the wind. Um, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, and it's in, it's in the system of imagining or the fantasy, which is a fantasy, which is that we don't need one another. Right. You know, right. it's a fantasy, it's a story. So people who have shit need shit. Yeah. You know, like, like we all, yeah. it's it's a kind of fantasy that it feels like, again, talk about unfixing things. It's like every, everyone needs things. So the fantasy of like independence is no, oh no. Right. One, one so-called independence is actually, you're just, you're just exporting your need. I did want to talk a little bit about bodies. Bodies are really important in your writing. So this story, which made me think about a lot of the way that, you know, a lot of these incidents of good touching that happen in the Book of Delights. I went to Turkey with my, my wife is Turkish. And when my boy was six months old, we took him to Istanbul and we went out to a restaurant, a fish restaurant. And the waiter came over and was talking to my wife and looking at the baby and, and then picked up the baby, my baby, and took him away into the kitchen, <laughs> like in, into the restaurant. And I think you can imagine as an American, what that felt like. I was like, what, what the fuck just happened? I think I probably said, what the fuck just happened? Like where, what, you know? Um, to which she replied like, oh no, this is normal. They just want to coo over the baby in the kitchen. <laughs> So I want to use that little story as a springboard to go where you'd like to go about bodies and how we touch and how bodies respond to each other in the public space. Yeah, that reminds me of there's that essay in this book where there's this little kid like <laughs> toddling down in the airplane and people can't, they can't not pick this kid up. At some point, like this little kid goes down the aisle like three times and everyone's like, ah, you know? <laughs> and I, I think I say this in the essay, I'm not particularly like a baby person, you know, but I'm like, I was like, wow, this is a good show. <laughs> and then, and, you know, and then the people, like people just can't not, they're like this kid eventually, it's like four times this kid running up and down the aisle of the plane, boom, someone's like picking that kid up and the kid's like bouncing around and everyone's like, hey. Baby. <laughs> and there was, and I'll say there was the other essay as well, where you were at uh, a march uh, and the kid child gets lost and the whole crowd of protesters comes together to find the mother. Kind of coalesces around this kid. Yeah, totally. I think I'm fundamentally interested in bodies because we die and the kind of preciousness and the, and the precarity and the disappearingness of each interaction, mm -hmm. you know? The older I get, the more I'm attuned to, whoa, this, 
this is um, the only time this will happen. And this very well might be the last time I see right. this person. Right. But yeah, like, you know, which is part of why I'm just, I'm, I'm very interested in like performance. So theater or readings of readings uh, or talks where things are actually unfixed. Right. And like, you know, someone might have to stop for 10 minutes because they have to go to the bathroom or the mic's not working or they got like something caught in their throat. And it's like, you know, they're trying to get an eyelash off and out of their mouth. And it's like, oh yeah, that's right. That person like me is going to die. This is why, unless someone adamantly refuses, I will never do an interview on the telephone without visual contact. Because even in this rarefied, disconnected, laggy, you know, space of Zoom, like I'm looking into your house, you're looking into my house, like, and our bodies are are communicating your face, my face, like our posture. Yeah, absolutely. It's so uh, intense. And, and like many of your delights in the Book of Delights are for these acts of physical closeness that shouldn't happen. You know, yeah. a hug from someone in a public space that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be hugging an acquaintance or someone tapping you on the shoulder. You know, when I think about that waiter taking my baby and like how in America, like we have, we're so protective of our personal space. Going back to this thing you were saying before about um, independence, about the sort of fic fiction of independence. Uh, you seem to be grateful whenever those moments happen that bodies act in unison or or violate one another's space, but in a welcoming, a welcome way. Exactly. Like sort of, uh, sort of open to one another in a certain kind of way. And and partly, like, so often the Book of Delights is sort of infused with, or I'm thinking, as I say in the introduction, like, I'm thinking about many things, and one of them is, like, racism. And I'm thinking about, like, what it means to have a body, like, how to sort of negotiate this desire for touch in the midst of awful touching. And also to sort of pay very close attention to the fact that we are also constantly beautifully touching each other, <laughs> you know? <laughs> We're constantly. That makes me. I, I want to very. I want to very quickly read one paragraph, which is from one of the essays, which is this. Um, and I don't even know what essay it's from, and that's not important. Um, the point is that in almost every instance of our lives, our social lives, we are, if we pay attention, in the midst of an almost constant, if subtle, caretaking, holding open doors, offering elbows at crosswalks, letting someone else go first helping with the heavy bags, reaching what's too high or what's been dropped, pulling someone back to their feet, stopping at the car wreck, at the struck dog, the alternating merge, also known as the zipper. This caretaking is our default mode, and it's always a lie that convinces us to act or believe otherwise, always. Yeah, and we are one another, even when we don't, even when the fiction suggests otherwise. <laughs> So each episode of my show is based on a single word. And in season one, I had, uh, I used a computer algorithm to randomly generate that word. Um, not that I programmed, but, you know, from the internet. And, um, and, and, and this time I've asked friends to send me words and having something to do with the natural world. And I've assigned them specifically to each guest. And so um, we'll just... I'll say the word and then and then whatever comes to mind or wherever you want to go with it. So yours is drum roll please from Jamie Mayberry in Chicago and the word is 
germinate? I mean, you know, I'm a gardener. I love gardening. And um, one of the things, talk about like the kind of resting that is part of a practice of whatever you call it, you know, whatever one's practice is. There is a way that resting, you know, when you plant seeds, seeds which are, by the way, you know, like I always, people ask me often about like, writing and gardening. And I always say there's just not a better metaphor. There's other great metaphors, but there's not a better metaphor than a seed. Because a seed is not only a seed. A seed is, in fact, inside of the seed is thousands of years of food. It's actually inside of a, a thing the size of, you know, the top of a pin. It's just, it's just true. <laughs> it looks so small, but damn, there's tons of stuff in that little thing. There's tons of nourishment in that little thing. And so I feel like the rest between like putting something in the ground, in the earth, and that's also useful to say too, putting something in the earth, which is also to say <laughs> the more, more I think of it, putting something with our dead into a kind of rest that from that patience, luck, the kindness of things we do not understand comes some germination often, yeah. you know? Not always, yeah. but something, something's germinating too that, that we don't know is germinating too. That's thing. You know, the seed contains so much food already, food from the dead, the gen- genetic experience of millions of years, thousands of years, whatever. And then it goes into the earth where it is f- further nourished by the dead. Like nothing comes from nowhere. Uh, none of us, nothing we can do, no art we can make, nothing is sui generis. <laughs> Which is another way of saying we need each other. Absolutely. Ross, um, thank you so much for being on Clever Creature. Thank you. It's really fun talking. Yeah. That beautiful theme music is by my son, Emre Gotts. Special thanks to James Mayberry for the word of the episode, Germinate. I'll be back in two weeks with legendary theater artist Andre Gregory. You can learn more about me on my website, jasongotts.com, and I'd be grateful if you could take a moment to rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen.